What causes backlash? Why do societies regress and become more authoritarian? To answer this question, we need to draw on cognitive psychology to understand people's motivations and then connect that to macro level changes. That's the big argument of Professor Kurt Wayland, who's at the University of Texas, and he's just published a new book on why South American countries became more authoritarian in the 1960s and 1970s. I'm a gigantic fan of his, and I'm so thrilled um, that he's come to join us. Kurt, welcome. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm really happy to be here and I'm interested in talking about this project. Awesome. So just to clarify different hypotheses, there's some people think that South American countries became more authoritarian in the 60s and 70s due to US influence. Is that not the case? So US influence played a role as a background condition, but I think the impression that essentially the Americans pushed right-wing authoritarianism is um, too easy because, I mean, you see lots of elites, politicians, military people, middle class people, common citizens in South America had the same fears of communism, of the spread of the Cuban revolution, of left-wing revolutionaries assailing the established order that they shared with the North Americans. And so in many ways, I mean, my argument is the, the U.S. didn't have to push very hard because so many sectors in Latin America shared the same concerns. There was a convergence of interests, there was a convergence of perceptions. How do you know this about the perceptions and interests? Where do you get that data from? So, I've done a lot of research in diplomatic documents in order to look at the influence and the perceptions of the U.S. in the views, perceptions, um, ideas of Latin American actors. I mean, I did some interviews, I read memoirs, I read documents from the time period. And so you see what they were worried about. And people are quite, I think, quite open and, and um, express their concerns. I mean, already at the time, and you can see kind of how exaggerated many of these fears were. I mean, here's the Cuban Revolution, here is the fear that the established order is more, more precarious than people had thought, and then you see the war is going. Mm. And that is, I think, um, and that was shared by Latin Americans and by the US, and they converged on this, and they cooperated, but it wasn't, it wasn't that the US pushed in mm. that sense very hard. They didn't have to push very hard. So just to <clears throat> clarify, when you say looking at sort of archival documents and diplomats' correspondence, does that get, so maybe that gets elite fears and perceptions, but what about, you know, sort of middle class perceptions? How do you get at that kind of data? They're, they're harder to assess. Mm. You have some reports there by people who vote. You have some opinion polls. I mean, mm. there are some opinion polls from the 1960s, oh, really? from the 1970s. Not many, mm. and you have some very basic questions, but you can see, for example, that in Brazil, before the military coup of 1964, um, there was concern about communism spreading, and there was um, pretty strong rejection of, for example, legalizing the Communist Party. So you see that anti-communism was pretty firmly entrenched in the population. Not only a mm. bunch of elites pushed this, but it was a fairly widespread perception. Okay, so what about another explanation that people often think of as a trigger for extremism or a, tr a trigger for us cling to authority is economic crisis. Like if our lives aren't going badly, we, we cling to the sort of political extremes, whether it's Weimar, Germany, whatever. Could that be an explanation in 1960s Latin America? So during that time period, there actually wasn't a 
big economic crisis, especially not a regional one. What's interesting is you have a wave of authoritarian regimes that get imposed by military coup from the early 1960s to the mid-1970s, and there was no region-wide economic crisis. I mean, when you think of economic crisis in Latin America, one of the biggest ones was the debt crisis of the early 1980s, and that led to re-democratization. Yes, yes. The opposite. Yeah. Where you had economic problems in Latin America in the 1960s and 70s, it wasn't a root cause because very often, I mean, to the extent that it existed, and it was country by country, it was not region-wide, to the extent that it existed, it was more the product and the outcome of political conflicts. I mean, think, for example, of Chile before the military coup of 1973. That was a terrible economic crisis. There was hyperinflation, there were scarcities. That was not the root cause of the problem. That was the consequence of polarization, of mobilization, of the increasing conflict between centrist right-wingers versus the left-wing Allende government. And so crisis is not the... Mm. independent variable is not the root cause it, it can occur along the way as part of the deterioration that is essentially resulting from political polarization okay so not the US not economic crisis but another possibility is the fear of communism so we had the communist revolution and as mm. I understand your book is this sort of trick of this two-step process the mm. communist revolution emboldened insurgents, these mm. extremist, uh, these sort mm. of far-left uh, insurgents, that gave them reasons for hope. They thought, wow, in their South American countries, they could do this too. Mm -hmm. And that was very similar to the 1848 revolution, which you've mm. written about, and the Arab Spring, people saw the immolation in Tunisia, they thought, right, we can do mm -hmm. this too. And then what happened? So what you see is, you have the Cuban revolution, and that creates a lot of enthusiasm among left-wingers. And it mm. happens in two steps, because first you see small groupings of real radicals who try to emulate what, in their view, Fidel Castro did right away, through yes. guerrilla movements. Right? Yes. So you have Che Guevara's Foco theory, and you have guerrilla movements popping up in virtually every Latin American country. Now, those guerrilla movements, they scare centrist right-wingers, military elites, but they're so ill-planned and ill-considered that they get repressed fairly easily mm. in virtually every country. And that, from the perspective of status quo defenders, that takes care of the problem. But what you also have, and that's the second step that you mm. mentioned, you have beside the real far radical left going to guerrilla movements, you have a much broader process of radicalization of left-wingers, even of Catholic centers, that think that a profound transformation of the established order is possible. They think the Cuban Revolution shows that you can do things. You can do land reform, you can do profound transformation, you can nationalize businesses. And, and it's that broader radicalization that you see, for example, in the Chilean Socialist Party, that you see among um, Catholic groupings with liberation theology that you see among populist sectors, for example, Peronism in Argentina mm. gets all radicalized. It's that broader radicalization of political forces, much more than the guerrilla movements and such, it's that broader radicalization that then causes a backlash from establishment forces and that leads, in one case after the other, in the Im to the imposition of authoritarian rule, to military coups. So, so those are the two steps. The guerrilla movements as mm. such don't really lead to the imposition of authoritarianism. Mm. They can't really be crushed by military yeah. and police. So though the authoritarian, the middle classes and the military elites 
the conservative elites didn't perceive the far left insurgents as a threat. They were something that could be easily quashed. Correct. But the bigger concern was the broader radicalization. Correct. And it was that broader radicalization mm -hmm. that increased support for authoritarianism because yes. people saw it as a yes. wider, more credible threat. There you see this polarization. You see in the Brazilian case, populist forces get more radical. They talk about basic reforms. There is mobilization in the streets. And then conservative sectors, middle class groupings, military sectors, business groups, they get void and they think, man, you know, this populist movement is kind of amorphous, it's fluid, who knows where this is going to end up mm. and who knows whether, there's always the fear that, um, you know, yes, this is a populist movement, but there are communists that are waiting in the wings and the idea is that communists are very savvy and they can take over a movement. So the populists kind of open the door and then small groupings of much more radical sectors will take over. And it's that, those kinds of fears, those concerns and, you know, very kind of exaggerated fears that lead to the imposition of authoritarian rule. Okay, so I have two questions now. One is, why weren't the centre-left people successful? They weren't successful first, um, there are a number of reasons. One is, in many cases, they were not very well organised. So there was kind of mobilisation. Mobilisation can be sustained for a short time. We were talking about mm. the Arab Spring, for yes. example. We see mass protests, yes. but they're not really very powerful in a in the sense of having sustained influence. That's the first thing. The second thing And the is, same were true in your work on 1848. Correct, like so. lots of protests, but they didn't exactly. have the organizational strength. Right. So then the military monarchies go. Right. Then one thing, one thing that um, conservative sectors, middle class groupings, military people vastly overestimated was the unity among these populist and left-wing sectors. There was a lot of infighting and a lot of divergence mm. and people talked about basic reforms but what they meant was very very different and you know there was also infighting among different leaders in these movements so um, while there was a groundswell of mobilization it was not pushing in one very clear direction at all. It was very heterogeneous, very fragmented, and that's one other reason why they weren't successful. The other thing is that in many cases you see that um, the protesters and those who want change are kind of noisy and they take the public stage, but the so-called silent majority is actually bigger, and they avoid, and they sit there, and they don't necessarily go out and counter-mobilize, but they will acquiesce in support, call for, in the end, the military to come in and restore order. So, but w surely in very unequal, poor places, like much of South mm -hmm. America in the 1960s, surely most people would have seen some centre-left redistributive scheme as in their self-interest. No, that is exactly what, what isn't the case. I mean, and it's, it's very interesting also theoretically speaking, mm. because I mean, first you talk about inequality. Inequality would suggest that um, poor people, people who want a change, who want redistribution will be in the vast majority, mm. but that isn't the case for all kinds of reasons. Um, and that is all, it's theoretically interesting because we have in the last 15 years had these arguments about um, inequality leading to pressures from below to forces of revolution to mm -hmm. kind of class struggle mm -hmm. and that that in many ways 
didn't really play out. Yeah, that there's way. very little evidence of it, absolutely. Right. And so what you see is that while inequality motivates some sectors to protest and to demand change, there are also a lot of other sectors that oppose this, partly because they have other interests, not only material, right. economic interests, they worry about religion and they worry about nationalism and they worry about order and those kinds of things. And we see that in the US, US for example, like yeah, poor sure, white exactly. people might prioritize ethnic nationalism. Exactly. Yeah. And then you talked before about um, the role of cognitive psychology. I mean, one of the basic findings of cognitive psychology is that people are motivated by disproportionate loss aversion. And yeah, so this is your key point in your book, that people are more the... concerned about losses to their existing entitlements than possible Correct. gains. Right, and so what you see is, when you think about inequality, I mean, making improvements in inequality would be a gain. And so that basic cognitive psychological mechanism suggests that not that many people push hard for a gain. But if you try to enact profound redistribution, if you want to have something called a revolution, mm -hmm. that would impose losses, clear losses on a number of sectors. And those sectors are much more likely to mobilize. They mobilize in much greater numbers and they mobilize with much greater determination. And so the disproportionality, the, the limited pursuit of gain and the strong aversion to losses, that is, I think, in my view, one of the main factors that explains that the forces of change were usually significantly smaller and significantly less determined than those who really didn't want that, those mm. who put up a big fight and who tried to defend their benefits, privileges, and who were in the end willing to crush the forces of change. So I have a question. When you talk about these military conservative religious elites and some of the popular classes who then supported authoritarianism because they perceived this threat on the centre-left, is that not rational choice? Is it not them trying to preserve their existing position? It, it is not rational choice because it is skewed by this, um, I mean, it's skewed in two ways. First, by mm. this asymmetrical loss aversion mm. that those who defend, um, how should I say, are more motivated. And so you have more, more of those people who um, mobilize to defend and they defend with all means by contrast to those who want to bring about gains who are less strongly motivated, so fewer of those people get into the fight and not with the same determination. The yeah, same so this is a key, so just to pick up on this, this is a key yeah. point in your book that you think the authoritarians used more force than was really necessary yes, to quell absolutely. this. Why, I, mean, I, I wonder if we could just talk about that a little bit. Why does that show that the rational choice theory is wrong? Couldn't that just be they wanted to preserve their existing entitlements, so you do a sort of scorched earth scenario? Yeah, but I mean... How does that undermine rational choice? Well, first of all, I mean, how should I say that? Rational choice essentially predicts proportional responses and reactions, right? So you have a challenge and you respond proportionally. And what you can argue in, in a number of those cases the those who want to defend the status quo cracked on much harder. I mean, think think of the iconic images of the Chilean coup mm. that, you know, they had military airplanes literally bomb the presidential palace. You had like a thousand people killed within the weeks after the coup. Like one, one of the terrible episodes that I mentioned in the book is the so-called caravan of death where uh, a general sent by... Um, Dictator Pinochet traveled across the country and 
ordered the execution of people who were already imprisoned, right? I mean, so there is no rational justification for killing people who are already under detention. I mean, you might say, well, we fight a dirty war and we crack down in the middle of fighting if there were an armed resistance, but if we've already locked up these people, there's not, not, really, not really a rational reason to execute them and you know, shoot them. So a number of ways. So the extent, so the extent of the harsh repression shows yes. that it can't just be a protecting self-interest kind of yes. explanation. Yes, I mean, of course, of course, you mentioned you mentioned how do we distinguish these cognitive psychological yes. arguments from rational choice, and it's always empirically difficult because mm. cognitive psychology in its laboratory experiments they can manipulate the costs and benefits and the perceptions and the probabilities yes. exactly and they can prove there's a deviation from mm. the prediction of rational choice in the real world it's often harder you know who who can actually I mean, nobody actually knows what was the exact preference schedule of President you know, <laughs> Taylor Pinochet, right? I mean, you can't kind of put decision rates mm -hmm. to it. So we reconstruct, we make it in some sense plausibility mm -hmm. arguments. And so um, that's the reason why, you know, um, these episodes of very harsh repression, of repression that doesn't seem to be necessary. And I mean, those seem to provide evidence for the cognitive psychological deviation from rational choice. The other, the other so, and, and just to just yeah. to remind the listener here, so the argument is that the author, the authoritarian inclined people overestimated the threat, yes. and so that's why they cracked down Correct. so heavily. They saw these protests. They didn't realize there wasn't this strong organization. They didn't realize there was this internal dissent. So they thought, right, let's crack down super super heavily. Yes. I, I'm actually making two arguments and they're connected. One is that um, people who fear losses yes, respond very in, with great determination. Mm. They really want to forestall these losses. And that's, I think, one reason why there was this excessive crackdown. Mm. The second argument is what you just alluded to is that these people also overestimated the threat of losses. So you have two steps. First, the perception mm. that um, the Cuban Revolution suggests that both to left-wingers and to right-wingers, yes. that dramatic change was, was easier than they had expected. Before the Cuban Revolution, people had thought that these Latin American social orders were pretty consolidated, pretty cemented, you couldn't do very much. Then, is the, then the Cuban Revolution happens and it suggests to left-wingers, revolution is possible, and it suggests to right-wingers, revolution is possible. So the perception, despite mm. very different interests, the perception was shared on both sides. And it was that that inference, that perception, that um, made right-wingers so worried. They had exaggerated fears. And then that exaggerated fear suggested to them that losses were right around the corner, and then loss aversion comes in and makes them crack down so hard. And so you have two, two levels of cognitive distortion. Exaggerated fears, excessive perceptions of the risk of revolution and then based on those perceptions mm. that loss aversion comes in and induces a harsh crackdown. So I can totally see how loss aversion is a plausible hypothesis but how are there ways that we can test whether it's true like what would give us more reason to think it's that rather than something else like I, I agree it helps right. us fill in the gap but I think you can only kind of reconstruct the yeah. asymmetry. You can say, mm. um, so one argument I make in the book is, 
in terms of loss aversion, what, what you said a few minutes ago. So there's a high level of social inequality, yes. right? And left-wingers say, we are going to enact reform, we are going to enact revolution, we are going to enact change that mm. will make things better for the vast majority of the population, mm. right? And so and you can say, clearly, um, redistributive reform should offer benefits to the vast majority of the population. Mm. Mm. But what you see is in these struggles of the 1960s and 70s in Latin America over redistribution. Not in a single case did the left win a clear majority. The closest they came was in Chile under Allende, where in one municipal election they won 49%. But never ever was there a clear majority. It was always a majority for maintaining the status quo, for making only modest changes. And so you see there this asymmetry. I mean, from a purely rational perspective and in line with these kind of inequality, class struggle mm. arguments, you would have expected that the vast majority of the population supports the push for change and that only limited elite mm will try to maintain the status quo. And that's clearly not the case. That was clearly not the alignment. I mean, the elite and the military found wide support for a lot of what they did. So like right after the coup in Brazil, when repression was not all that high, the opinion polls were held. And it seemed, I mean, the polls showed that a majority of the population accepted the military coup. They thought the military coup that evicted left-wing populist from government was a good thing. And so there you see that, you know, contrary to the mm. kind of the rational mm. um, push for benefits of these people, they actually don't want them. Okay, but let me, I, I just want to present a counter-argument and then you sure. can tell me why I'm wrong. So your implication is that although some people stood to gain, they didn't want those gains enough as the other people were feared about the losses. Cool. And might I, and so the argument there is that the poor, marginalised, disadvantaged people just didn't want wealth enough. And I sort of wonder whether that low preference for, you know, wealth is, a, is the only explanation. So I think there could be other explanations, you know, for example, black domestic workers may have low self-efficacy. They may doubt whether they can really mm -hmm. mobilise if they've only been working by themselves or indigenous people who've been sort of habituated to subordination, forever told mm -hmm. that they're useless, forever told that they're worthless. You know, this low sense of self-esteem, low sense of collective efficacy. Uh, if people internalise racist stereotypes, if the working classes are forever told that they're backward, mm -hmm. dangerous, radicals, you know, those kinds of beliefs that can corrode, can one, undermine people's hope, can, mm -hmm. you know, impede a sense of, you know, can, can foster a sense of despondency, a sense mm -hmm. of despair, a sense of fatalism, something which the Catholic Church, although there was a section of liberation theology, there was also a part of the Catholic Church that might, you know, reinforce a sense of fatalism, you know, accept your lot, mm -hmm. sort of. I think there was a strand of that, right? So is it possible it's not so much that poor disadvantaged people didn't want to be any better off, but rather they had the set of beliefs that, uh, that impeded them from, from believing in themselves, from believing in left-wing change? They clearly played a role. Um, mm. But what you see there is still that the, the very basic materialist demand for improvement in economic and social terms oh, yeah. wasn't strong enough to overcome those types of 
ideational, cultural, you know, habituated obstacles. No, absolutely. And I think even more recently, like after 2000, like a successive Latina, Latina, Latino barometer data shows that poorer, disadvantaged people don't necessarily vote for parties on the left. Yeah, correct. Because yeah. people yeah. have all different interests. Mm -hmm. And there's, I don't think there's any association between democratization and inequality, falling, etc. So that's awesome. So I'm just interested to understand more about this middle, I find this middle class support really interesting for mm. the authoritarianism. So is it that middle, why would people, why would middle class people see a loss in the, in the sort of socialist re redistributionist agendas? I mean, how many people were the sort of property owning bourgeoisie in so, 1960s South America? So when you think, I mean, in some sense, the very, the very, depth of inequality right. um, suggests that what we call middle-class people in Latin American societies were probably in the top quintile of the income distribution, right? Because when we talk about middle-class in yeah, Latin America, sure. we, don't more, we don't mean the people who are in the middle of the income distribution. No, no, distribution, we mean the top right? secure. And exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It could even be so, 5%, right? Those with so, the secure... Yeah. Exactly. Or so, the labor aristocracy, so, still a small right. proportion. Yeah. So, I mean, so those people were quite high up in the right. income distribution. Yeah. And so, you know, when you think, I mean, lots of people have earned minimum wage, twice the minimum wage, up to like three times the minimum wage. So if you are like eight times the minimum wage, like a middle class person, you are far above. Sure, the but those, those people are the elites. Why would you get, I'm still struggling, but why would you get massive. I mean, you know. But why would you? I, I, what I'm trying. Why would say 50% of the population say see left-wing redistribution as a bad thing, as a dangerous thing, as a threat? And why would they see that as a well, loss? Why would most people, or a single majority of people, see redistribution as I, a loss? I'm not saying that they see it as a loss. A lot of people. I mean, first of all. A lot of people don't mobilize very strongly for gains. Those who see a loss mobilize very much. And right, I mean, yeah. a lot of a lot of what happens in politics. I mean, a lot of mobilization, even voting, is not by the vast majority of the population. Right? I mean, street battles between the left and right in yeah. Chile were, were fought by comparatively small numbers of people. Mm, it's the mm, most mobilized mm. people who get into yes. the game, and then. Those who, for example, I mentioned these opinion polls, I mean, one, one, one thing that diminished support for redistribution mm. is that usually these, um, these efforts lead to transitional turmoil and transitional crisis. We were talking before about economic problems. So you saw that both in Brazil and in Chile, the mobilization of populist or left-wing forces for profound social change led to increasing inflation, to mobilization in the streets and that is already something that a whole bunch of people for example mm. middle class people don't like mm. very much and mm. that um you know is so just the, the transitional problems that you would get okay no i can understand that okay so here's another question a comparative politics question mm. why did some south american countries become more authoritarian but others didn't so there so there i make a so that gets complicated because what you see is um, you see not many Latin American countries escape from this authoritarian wave. The two countries that escaped at that point in time, and I'm not talking about Central America, I'm talking about South America, um, are Colombia and Venezuela. And so there they make the argument that when the Cuban Revolution happened, domestic sectors supported by the United States 
initially tried to respond with a reform strategy designed to preempt what they saw as revolution. It was the famous Alliance for Progress that John F. Kennedy declared, partly listening to suggestions from Latin Americans. And the idea was you make social reform to forestall revolution. Yes. And that plays out differently in different countries. Mm. It actually works quite well in a country like Venezuela, where there are two parties that are reasonably reformist, that are reasonably well organized, that are reasonably programmatic, mm -hmm. and they enact reforms, and those reforms allow them to maintain a good amount of support from popular sectors. Mm -hmm. And so where the, this Alliance for Progress works out, especially in Venezuela, Colombia is a more borderline case because there were some reforms, but not that many, and in Colombia it's a, it's a exceptional country in Latin America. You had longer lasting guerrilla movements that led to the FARC 50 years later. So Colombia is a more borderline case. But in cases where this Alliance for Progress kind of limits support for the radical left and you had in, in, that, in, in the sense of radicalization in the party system, radicalization in terms of you know broader protest movement, um, in those cases, you see democracy surviving. Mm. What happened in, for example, Chile. In Chile, there mm. was the Alliance for Progress was done in the 1960s under the Christian Democratic Presidency of Eduardo Frey. But it didn't bring reform that pacified the country. It led to left-right polarization because you had a stronger left already that feared that they would be outflanked by this reform initiative. So they radicalized even more to say this Alliance for Progress and its reforms are not enough. It's just a palliative. What we need is real revolution. And so in those cases where the Alliance for Progress leads to radicalization, mm. like in Brazil, like in Venice, in, like in Chile, there you see that then this radicalization, this broader-based radicalization, that um, prompts the crackdown by military forces. But wait a second, so you're saying that governments that introduce some redistribution preempt radicalization Correct. of the society and without that radicalization there's Correct. less Without, with lower levels of radicalization, there's lower fear from the elite, Correct. so the elite doesn't crack down. Mm -hmm. Might I suggest an alternative explanation? Might it be that the kind of governments that would introduce a redistributionist reform would be the ones that are already slightly more sympathetic to a redistributionist agenda, so less worried but, about it anyway? But not when you think of it. Um, so the reformist party in Venezuela, San Democratica, was in terms of ideology and in terms of their reform initiatives quite similar to the Christian Democratic Party in Chile. But the, but the, the Acción Democratica in Venezuela, because he had a fairly strong two-party system, there was no, no party to its left. Right. And so there was no competitor from the left who could say, this is not enough. And oh, I this see, is, right, okay. You know, we want more. And that's what you had in Chile. You had right. In Chile, you had the Christian Democratic Party, which at that point in time, Christian Democratic Party in Latin America during the 1960s was pretty left-wing. And they did land reform, they did education reform, they nationalized half mm. of Chile's copper. There was a pretty ambitious reform agenda, but the Socialist Party and the Communist Party said, that's not enough, and you're just doing this to give capitalism a soft face, and we want the real change, and we are really into revolution. And so where you had a you know, 
fairly strong and radicalized left, and the, the Socialist Party in Chile was surprisingly radicalized by the Cuban Revolution. And so they gave heat, they just, you know, complained that this um, was only a limited change yeah. and they had to do the real thing. And so that set in motion this polarization and radicalization. And that led to the election of Salvador Allende, who then really tried to do the real thing. And that's what scared military and middle class business. Okay, so then let me suggest another alternative explanation. What if the... The independent variable then is not that Venezuela introduces some redistribution, but Venezuela doesn't have that fear on the left. Well, so, so, so then they don't have the concern about the insurgency, so then they don't have the need to crack down because they think it's all going to be fine. Right, so of course then we go, we go a step further back, which is that in Venezuela you actually had a pretty strong and surprisingly long-lasting guerrilla movement. And that is one reason why you didn't have a strong left in the party system, because the more of a guerrilla movement you have, the more that discredits the left in the party system. And so in some sense, you know, in Venezuela, the Venezuelan guerrilla movement was very directly supported by Fidel Castro and that discredited the left in the party system. And so again, the, you know, the weakness of the left in the party system wasn't again an independent variable, it was partly the result of that very strong, long-lasting, long-festering guerrilla movement. Okay, I'm with you. So now, reflecting on this book, I'd like us to take a step forward, thinking about political science more broadly. If we accept that in these cases in Latin America with authoritarianism, that it's not rational choice, it's also about fears, loss aversion, overestimation of the possibility of gain on the part of the insurgents being inspired by the commun communist revolution, on behalf of the uh, authoritarians worried about that threat. Why do you think it's important for political scientists to engage with cognitive psychology? What do you think cognitive psychology gives us that we're not already seeing? What I think it gives us is, in, I mean, when I look when I look at these types of events, it gives mm. us a much better understanding of kind of the tragedy of the time period. Because, mm. you, you know, when I go back to the time period, I'm amazed by the kind of the illusions on both sides. That the left thought, oh, it was so easy to change the world. And the yeah. right thought, oh my God, it's so dangerous and we have to crack down so hard. And so... You know, I think you understand, if you think of this from a rational choice mm. perspective, you think like, oh, this is all people just calculating gains and losses. <laughs> and you have no understanding and no sense of what actually went on. That mm. so many lives were lost and mm. crushed and people tortured and killed, whatever, over these misunderstandings. Mm. And, you know, I think you get a much better sense of what sort of the spirit of the time, what happened at that time. Okay, so here's a question. I'm totally with you on the mad love for cognitive psychology, but I don't see this as being very common in political science, and that's a source of frustration to me. Can you share some tips on how others might engage with cognitive psychology? So you, for example, looked at the archives, you've looked at people's memoirs, people's letters, mm -hmm. correspondence, and also public surveys. What other tools, what other things can people look for as a way of understanding people's desires and beliefs? I mean, actually, from my, in, in my view, that was one of the most fascinating aspects of a project like this, that 
we really gain, I think, a much deeper understanding what people of at the time thought and what they felt. And, you know, the research as such is kind of fascinating mm. because it's not just like making some little model about, <laughs> you know, gains and losses and probability assessments, mm. but like trying to understand what went through these people's minds, you know, reading their memoirs, reading their statements from the time. I mean, some of the people I still managed to interview and gaining an understanding, you know, how how people can kind of perceive and misperceive and get carried away by international trends. And, mm. you know, I think that's, I think that in of itself, I mean, I, just, I love the research as such. Yeah. <laughs> that's one of the, one of the best aspects of something. Like no, that. <laughs> I agree. I agree. So what are the, what are the implications for this today? Like politically, what do we learn from this? Well, I mean, in some so should sense, I be not too radical for fear that this? No, you shouldn't be too <laughs> radical, and also people shouldn't be too worried. So, like you know, think think for example recently. So now in the U.S. after the election of Donald mm -hmm. Trump, people were worried about um, you know what is going to happen to democracy mm -hmm. and Donald Trump. What is he going to do? And two of my colleagues wrote this book, How Democracies Die, with a black cover, right? <laughs> Levitsky and Zimbabwe, yeah, right? Zimbabwe, right? You know, and so people get got all worried and bent out of shape and what Trump would do and essentially relax. I mean, you know, it, it it's most likely it's not going to be that bad. People people can kind of jump to these conclusions. They see this wave of populism coming their way and there is Brexit and there's Trump and there's Marine Le Pen waiting in the wings. But what we often don't understand, I mean, what we often don't fully sort of grasp is, you know, this there isn't this kind of very clear wave. I mean, like something like Donald Trump and Brexit, I think it has created so many deterrent effects that Marine Le Pen, where's Marine Le Pen now, right? I mean, two or three years ago, people thought she would be the next president of France and the European Union would fall apart and whatever. But some of these events, they can cause kind of backlash effects, deterrent effects. And so I think I think that's a, a, broader, a broader insight that I gained from this project is that people people can overestimate kind of contagion and demonstration effects and we don't think enough of kind of the opposite of deterrent effects. And so here you have Trump and here you have Brexit and people think, oh, this is going to be a whole wave. What's and there will be Le Pen and Gerd Wilders in the Netherlands and whatever. And then what you see is here's Brexit and here's Trump. And that's the reason why there is not Le Pen, because people in France were like, oh my God, not that, right? And people in the Netherlands, oh my God, we won't do that kind of thing. Okay, here's a question. What is the danger of overestimating the fear of Trump? Um, for example, why is that a problem? I, th I think it's a problem. I think it's a problem because um, it can lead to... Um, exaggerated kind of what in the US they call resistance, that people think they have to protest and they have to go all out and they have to just hate the man, whatever. And I mean, I think what you saw is, um, in my view, it was very instructive what happened in the US midterm elections last year. Yes. Because what happened is that in many ways, although a few kind of people who are more kind of, you know, from the US perspective, determined against Trump were on the Democratic ticket. The Democrats won the midterm elections big time yeah. because these participatory and resistance energies were channeled to the electoral process because yes. a lot of the candidates who ran were reasonably moderate and centrist and they won 
in those areas like suburban areas where the fight is for the swing voter in the middle, not for the mm. radical constituencies. And so, I mean, if you get all bent out of shape because you think Trump is a fascist, then you you use the wrong strategy. What's, what's strategy the wrong strategy? Of, of protest, of contention. Why is of going protest the wrong strategy? Yeah, Why is in, protesting in, Donald Trump the wrong strategy? Because, because the U.S., has very consolidated electoral institutions. And for example, think about it now. I mean, the more radical strategy would be to try to impeach Trump. I think mm -hmm. the, the correct strategy is to vote him out mm -hmm. in 2020. You, you try to impeach the man, it's not going to go forward. You make a testimonial statement, you can mobilize your base, people get kind of... the I wanted good, to go back to the protest though. Why are the protest the wrong strategy? Why is, you know, women's marches, protesting for immigrants, why would that be the wrong strategy? I think a march is fine, but it's not going to do anything about Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump is happy about every march that happens because he can say, see these unruly people out there. That That's what gets covered on Fox News. That's what gets covered on Breitbart News. When people vote him out of office in a perfectly orderly, conventional way, that's what does damage. So I would say, I would totally agree, of course, elections matter in order to determine outcomes in a democracy, yeah. but I would say that the marches are important for exactly the reasons you raised, that if people look and they don't see much public critique, if they think that no one else is speaking out, if no one else is mobilizing, they may give up hope and they may not think anything is possible, but when they see millions of women, for example, like the climate change marches, when people see so many school kids taking to the streets to demand change, they become more hopeful and they invest in climate change activism or they invest in women's rights activism. And that kind of hope is really important in organizing, building organizations and making sure people go to the polls because they think that change is possible. My, my reasoning is the following. Yes. Pop Populists live off confrontation. Populists mm. want to have, you know, contention on both sides. Mm. So populists essentially are happy when people protest, especially when the protests, if they were disorderly or whatever. Mm. Um, so in many ways, you, you can't go for the bait that the populists give you. What you have to do is you have to essentially, you know, calmly, quietly, with a positive message, not with an anti-Trump message, defeat mm. them. Yeah. So I mean, when you think of, for example, the campaign of Beto O'Rourke in the state of Texas where I happen to live. Yes. I mean, his message was much less anti-Trump, anti-Trump, anti-Trump. Mm. It was a positive message. Mm. We can do things differently. There is mm. a way of bringing this country together. There is kind of a hopeful mm. way. Mm. There is a, you know, I mean, the, the, the populists want battle and the populists want Though he lost, battle. of course. He, he lost, but I mean, he came so close, mm -hmm. much closer than anybody, any Democrat in the state but of I, Texas. But I, I just wonder how you ensure that how you get people to vote if they remain despondent, if they don't think change is possible. Like, ele like low electoral turnout is a is a big problem, right? Particularly for the Democrats, and could lead to Trump's re-election if if lots of marginalised, disadvantaged groups don't go to the polls. So I would have thought that protests, regardless of whether Trump likes them or not, like I don't care whether Trump likes the protests, but protests might be important for disadvantaged, marginalized people on the left into galvanizing hope for a but, more... But when you, when you talk about, about marginalized people, mm. I mean, those are not the people who protest. The people who protest, they're going to vote against Donald Trump anyway, yes. and they're already fired up. Mm. So, I mean, in many ways, who you have to reach are the more centrist sectors in the middle that don't have 
you know, they don't have very strong preferences and views. They don't hate Trump. That could potentially, you know, be won over by both sides. And you don't win those over with like big protests and big accusations and impeachment and big shows on TV, you know, that you attack the man or whatever. They don't, they don't, they don't want to have the infighting. They want to have a positive message. They want to have a message that, you know, their needs and their... Um, interests are being attended to and a lot of those needs and interests are fairly kind of bread and butter and down to earth and they're not the advanced goals that a lot of these protesters have and you and, and I think you you might not reach these people if you kind of you know go for the more kind of advanced sectors in the Democratic Party. So I guess there are two distinctions there. One is whether protests work, and the second question is what kind of messaging should be had in a protest, right? So those are the two distinctions. Yes. But I, I appreciate your provocation that there's <laughs> obviously a spectrum of people, and some of the more centrist people might be put off by some of the radical messaging, and that could and that can trigger a backlash, like as in Latin mm -hmm. America. This was very useful and insightful for me. Thank you very much, Kurt. Thank you very much for the <laughs> conversation.